Ahoy! It's your boy. And welcome to episode 10 of the podcast. This is M. Wow, double digits. Um, wow, I didn't think we'd hit this so quickly. I mean, I guess it's, uh, I don't know what you think. Well, I mean, for you guys, it's 10 weeks, but for me, it's actually much sooner. Uh, I record about twice a week, which I've said before, but um, it's actually been, I don't know, it's, it feels like it's been a while since I've done this. Um, and I've actually given quite a bit of thought um, to the podcast. Um, I know a couple episodes we had our State of the Union address where I really talked about this is really my primary interest right now. And uh, that's still the case. Um, but um, I don't know. I don't know if I should feel regretful for what the podcast has been for the last few episodes. I, I just feel like for a while it was getting pretty heavy. And that's fine. I don't, I, I mean, I, like I said, I sit down and I don't know what we're going to talk about. So I sort of follow the podcast wherever it goes. But uh, I'm, I'm still hoping that it's entertaining for uh, the few of you who listen on a regular basis. And um, I just hope it's entertaining. Um, but yeah, um, you're going to hear this much later, but uh, today's Sunday. Uh, it is the, it's October 22nd, I believe. Let me see. It's October, tw- actually, well, it's October 27th. Tomorrow's the 28th. Um, and I have new music coming out tomorrow, which is something I think um, some of you have been waiting for for a while. Um, I've been promoting the podcast a fair amount and I, um, I had a scheduling thing with my producer, Gowan Matthews last month that kept us from, um, releasing another song, which is something I've been doing every month this year, but we have new music coming out tomorrow. It's an older song of mine called crying. And we, I, 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 it, it, you know, it's so funny when you, you know, at the end of the year here, I'm taking in some, uh, much older songs into the studio. Um, and the next song I actually have coming out, which, uh, might be out by the time you hear this episode is a song called Backbone, um, which like crying was recorded, uh, probably back in 2014, I think is, I think it was, uh, I had a batch of like eight songs or so. And I went into, uh, Hyde street studios in San Francisco, which is a famous recording studio. Um, actually it was Hyde, Hyde street studio C, which is upstairs in Hyde street and it's uh, co owned or operated by, um, um, an acquaintance of my name, Scott McDowell, who records with a lot of great artists out here. I know he's worked with Goodnight Texas, Kelly McFarling, and, uh, I just, a, a lot of, you know, a lot of cool people out here making music in the Bay area. And I remember I just booked a day with him and, um, and I uh, just recorded all these songs uh, as a single or in a single take. And it doesn't mean I recorded them in the first take, but um, they were put out as a record called Volume One back in uh, like 2014, which isn't available uh, anymore. But it had, I think it ended up having seven songs on it. And um, you know, it was funny, those, that record came out, it was pretty much ignored. And I played a, a few of those songs live pretty regularly for a couple of years. And then they just disappeared. And, uh, they never really saw the light of day. And some of those songs I really like crying was one, um, this song backbone that's coming out soon is another one and actually falling in love, which is one of my favorite songs that I've done in the last year with Gowan, uh, is also from that collection. But those were songs that I enjoyed and, um, I, I, I just knew at some point I would take them into the studio with Gowan and get the, the full studio treatment and they sound great. And crying is one of those that became something quite a bit different in the studio than how I heard it in my, in my head. Um, 
and it's always so surprising to me. You know, I think I go in the studio and I, I, you know, sometimes you have this vision in your head of what the arrangement is going to be and it comes out completely different. And a lot of it just has to do with, and, 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 and honestly, I can, I can anticipate it. Um, I figured that this song would be quite a bit different because I, I know my, my tendencies as a songwriter and, um, you know, going into the studio and just having someone else's ear on your music and they're able to provide feedback and, and point out things that you just never really thought about. I think sometimes in the writing, my guitar work can be, and not that I'm a, I don't even consider myself a categorically good guitar player, but, um, I think my guitar playing can be a little bit busier than it needs to be. And I don't know if that's because I'm playing solo usually and I, for whatever reason, I think the song needs more or I'm trying to fill it out um, either consciously or unconsciously, I don't know. But uh, when I go in the studio, the guitar part is usually simplified um, and usually, especially the rhythm. I, I, do, I have this tendency to be real syncopated um, and sometimes, well, both syncopated and repetitive and it seems intuitive to me and it sounds fine to me, but when I go in the studio, I usually see Gowan's brow furrow and he goes, I think you need to play it differently. And I'm like, oh, okay. And he's always right. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's actually funny how, well, it, it's funny how that works, which is almost without exception when I'm in the studio with Gowan, I, I feel like when we're picking away at a song and working on the arrangement, I mean, really I would 90% of the work is Gowan. And, you know, I can sort of say yes or no to certain things. But for the most part, it's really Gowan takes the songs and runs with them. And when we're in the studio, I sort of come in and play it for him um, with just my voice and guitar. And then he'll say, okay, let's, let's, I mean, we don't even have to, I mean, we know what we're doing, but it's, it's usually like, all right, go into the live room. We're going to record uh, the guitar part. And I'll usually just play it once through singing and playing guitar just so I have a scratch track to then play along to where I just record just the guitar part. And then I'll go in the in the vocal booth and I'll record a scratch vocal track. And I'll usually do one or two takes of that just to have something that we can work against. Because um, when you're in the studio, you're usually not in good voice first thing in the morning, or at least I'm not. Um, it does vary. Some people, you know, everyone is different. They know when their voice sounds best. For me, it's usually in the late afternoon after we've worked on the song for a few hours. But I'll do like a, a scratch vocal take that we work against. And then we just start throwing stuff at it. And uh, it can start with the, the rhythm. You know, we'll add some drums. We'll add some uh, bass. Uh, and then we'll start throwing synthesizers or keys or um, other, you know, electric guitar. Uh, we'll just start throwing parts at it. And after about seven hours, which is a seven, I don't want I think we used to sometimes, we even pushed eight hours. But now it's about six or seven hours in the studio is a full day for us. And we leave with the song about three quarters of the way done. And I always leave not unhappy, but I feel very ambivalent about the song. Um, usually it's partly because the song is being taken in a different direction than what I heard in my head. When I write songs, a lot of what I hear in my head is this sort of like late 90s, early 2000s sort of pop arrangement. And when Gowan and I reference stuff that's you know, sort of on Spotify that's doing well, it's just, uh, we could certainly do the songs that way, but they're just, they sound like an anachronism. They just sound like they're from another time period. And I think a, a perfect example of that is a song called The Middle. And, you know, the most popular song for me on Spotify right now is a cover song called Middle. That's a DJ Snake cover. I'm not talking about that one. I'm talking about 
the song I wrote called The Middle on my uh, EP, um, the Be Free EP from 2016, maybe 17. I think it's 2016. But when I first brought that song into the studio, we did this like, um, um, I forget what people called it when they heard it eventually. Um, Not Better Than Ezra. What the fuck? What's the band? I don't know not jars of clay or some shit. I don't fucking know what people were saying, but it basically sounds like a late nineties alt rock song kind of counting crows ish kind of whatever. And, uh, that was the first version we did. And I think we spent about a day and a half, maybe two days on that arrangement. And I think we both kind of sat with it and I, I don't think it's bad. I think it's fine for what it is, but I remember coming in the next time we were in the studio and it was actually kind of a good moment for, I think for a couple reasons, one, it's it's just kind of a growing experience as a, as a creative person to look at something that you put a ton of time and, frankly, money into, and you still hear it and go, you know what, it's not good enough. It needs to be something different, or it needs to be better. And um, and um, so I'm I'm glad I was able to I don't know be honest with myself about that. Um, but it was also kind of a interesting point for me in terms of my relationship with Gallon, which is. I was, when I first went into the studio, I was really kind of nervous about it. You know, until then I had recorded all my songs myself and all my songs were just me and guitar. And, um, and, uh, I don't know. It, it, it was, it was scary for me for whatever reason. It, I don't, I don't, it felt vulnerable. Um, and I think I had a lot of ideas, uh, wrong ideas about what being in the, in the studio was like, and honestly it was based on my prior experience. And, uh, I don't say this to talk shit, but I've, you know, I've had friends who are producers. I've had friends who are engineers and I've taken other projects to them and I've never felt very confident around them. And I think it, when I look on it in hindsight, actually I kind of look at it like romantic relationships, which is as the living experience of your life is you can't really control, you know, who you sort of come into contact with. I mean, a lot of your relationships are, are just sort of predicated on proximity. Do you know what I mean? Um, you just sort of meet who you meet and bond with who you bond with. And, uh, and, um, and that, and, and that's how it is. And that sort of shapes your experience. And a lot of the producers and engineers I had met up until that point operated very differently than Gowan does, who, um, who's been my sole collaborator for probably like the last like three years, maybe even a little longer at this point. But, um, yeah, I think part of it is a personality thing. Um, they just kind of had, I don't know, strange personalities. There's one person in particular I would work with. And every time I worked with them, I would just leave and think, I don't know. I just felt weird. I didn't feel confident. I felt, I don't know, kind of weird. I don't know. And, um, and even my experience with Scott McDowell, who's phenomenal, but just for me personally, you know, Scott's more of an engineer. And um, he, I, I, here's really what I'm saying is, you know, a lot of those producers would look to me for direction and say, well, what are we doing? And if I didn't have a strong vision or didn't really know where we were going, there just wasn't a lot to be done, honestly. And I've had this experience with other creative people. I had it with a photographer recently, which is... You know, as someone who's shot a lot of video myself and has, you know, some fundamental knowledge of, I don't know, exposure and lighting and, you know, I, I just kind of know what the, the the product needs to be. I was working with this photographer and I could tell, you know, as we were sort of shooting away 
and they were showing me what they were shooting on the DSLR. They would show me the screen. And I would have to say things like, oh, you know what? Actually, we need to move the lights this way. And actually, I need more lighting on this side of my face. And actually, it needs to be brighter or... Um, I actually need you to come in closer or you know, I was having to give this person a lot of direction and that's fine. It's a, you know, ultimately it's a collaborative experience and sometimes, you know, you do have to give direction. But the thing that was disappointing about that um, encounter was I could tell that, it, that if at any point I had just looked at that photographer and said, oh yeah, that's good. They would have been perfectly fine with that being the end of the session. And they would have let me leave or have sent me, you know, whatever we had created and been perfectly fine with it. You know, they would get paid for their time and that would be it. And that sounds pretty straightforward, but it was disappointing to me because I, I know that that person's capable of more. I know that I I almost felt like they should have more respect in their own work, that they should be taking the initiative to know what, what this session needs right now. Because it wasn't just a matter of taste. It was fundamental things like, okay, well, that image is not... We don't have enough images that are in focus or the lighting isn't good enough. You know what I'm saying? It just wasn't a quality product. And I was like, at the end of the day, your name is going to go on this. Um, so yeah, it was strange to me that this person didn't take, more, um, take a, a stronger lead on that. But that was my takeaway from the experience. And... Um, yeah, and again, I'm not I'm not talking shit here, but that was just my experience with other with other producers. Is they were fine with me leaving with whatever I had, and and that was it. Um, they looked at themselves as more of a hand for hire rather than like a collaborator, or um, they just didn't have a lot of a you know creative momentum toward the project, I should say. And when I started working with Gowan, it was completely different. And I was really nervous because I had all these songs and I thought going in, I was going to have to tell Gowan exactly what I wanted, that I was going to have to say, okay, uh, here's how the bass part's going to go. And here's how the keys are going to go. And here's how the drums are going to go. And here's how it's all going to come together. And I just, I felt this huge burden of having to have it all figured out. Um, and I was so relieved and it was an adjustment for me, honestly, but I was so relieved that when I finally started working with him, he would. He was just off and running. Like I would come in, I'd, I'd play the song for him, and one we already kind of saw eye to eye on what the song needed. But he was totally cool with just sort of figuring it out. And he's he's never made me feel. You know, he's just always met me where I'm at. You know, and he's never made me feel like oh, um, this guy's unprepared or or you know if I just keep my mouth shut then we can get out of the session early today. He's always like oh it needs more oh it needs this and it's not done and we need to keep working on that or or that needs to change and he'll correct me. You know all the time I'll sort of pipe up and say oh I think that symbol hit should be in a different place or oh is that thing too loud and he's like he'll let me hear it you know how I think I need it needs to be done and then we'll both agree that it was better the way he had it. And uh, he just has great instincts. And I've never seen anyone who works as fast as him. I mean, it's really insane to me. He's not only a phenomenal producer and engineer, um, he's an incredible instrumentalist. He's a phenomenal guitar player. And we were working in the studio. Dude, we're working on this song, Backbone, right now. And I don't know if these instruments will actually make the final mix of the song, but you know, we're both hearing like, okay, this song needs like an organ. So he starts playing the, he has like a B3, I think is what you call it, right? Like one of those big organs with the, uh, the Leslie speaker that sort of spins. And so he's playing that, but then he's like, okay, it needs an accordion. And he grabs an accordion and he starts playing the fucking accordion. And then he, and then later we're like, oh, it needs a harmonica. So he grabs a harmonica and starts playing the fucking harmonica. And I remember 
you know, when he's in the booth, you know, I need to be at the controls. And so I'll like trigger the, the I'll hit record or whatever. And I remember I had the headphones on while he's doing the harmonica. And I just remember thinking, which I thought thousands of times literally, but it, it had sort of hit me anew when we were doing this take is I was like, fuck, this guy is so talented. I mean, he really is just a ball of talent. But here's, I think here's, ult- ultimately, here's what I'm trying to say. And I, I, I think I'm saying this for all creative people. At the end of the day, I mean, all those things are great. He's phenomenally talented. He's enthusiastic. Um, he gets the job done. He works quickly. He works for a fair price. Um, the nail in the fucking coffin for Gowan, for me, he's a good hang. And it may not sound like a big deal, but in my experience, and I think most people's experience, especially as a creative person, all things being equal, you're going to go with the better hang. I mean, I don't know what motivates other people, but it's like, look, there's a lot of talented producers out there. There's a lot of, lot of talented instrumentalists. If you're a pain in the ass, you're not going to work. Because if somebody else can do it, hell, even if someone was a little bit less talented or less whatever, if they were just a better hang, they're going to get the gig. I mean, and there's a lot of things I love about Gowan, but I, I think what I enjoy so much is that he's just a good person to hang out with. In fact, and it's something I've actually thought of in light of the podcast. I mean, in light of the fact that I enjoy doing this so much. You know, some of my favorite moments in the studio are sort of in between the actual musical stuff. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I was literally thinking this yesterday. I was like, you know, maybe you have someone who likes your music and maybe for them, they think, oh, I'd love to see you in the studio. You know, I'd love to just spend a day in the studio with you and watch you operate as if it's just this, I don't know, this uh, fountain of, of creative catharsis and discovery and excitement. Dude, it's boring. Being in the studio is boring as hell. You know, it's sort of like acting, which is, you know, you act for 30 seconds and then they call cut and then they have to move the lighting around and then you sit in your trailer for an hour or two when they set up the next shot. Then you act again for like another minute or two and then you go back to your trailer. You know, it's just like, and that's kind of what, that's kind of what being in the studio is like. You know, it's a little bit of music, it's a little bit of performing, but the rest of the day you're just sort of staring at a computer mixing and EQing things and uh, moving things around. And uh, it, it, it is exciting in its own way. And if you enjoy it, you can certainly get lost in it. But I, I just think anybody else in the room would just be bored to fucking tears. And, um, but, you know, so because of that, you know, and I sit next to Gallon the entire time. And I've sort of asked him, you know, hey, what do other clients do? And he's like, well, it's different. I mean, some people just you know, are on their phones or whatever, but I'm like watching him the entire time because I learned so much. You know, I I see how he EQ stuff. I see what all the plugins do. You know, I see um, just the little details about his craft, you know, his little keyboard short, shortcuts for doing stuff. And, you know, oh, oh that's how you comp um, a track or a vocal take or, um, and that's how you do it quickly. I mean, he's so fucking, tr- dude, he's, he's so fucking quick and I, I, he spends so much time at the computer. He's got this fucking crazy mouse that's like, it's upright and he just sort of moves it around and he clicks with his fucking feet. He has a mouse foot pedal. Have you ever fucking seen it? Dude, he doesn't click the mouse with his hand. He has a fucking foot pedal. 
that he uses. And it's like, I, dude, I guess if you spend that much time in front of a computer, you'll take any fucking alleviation that you can. You know, like, I don't know. I guess ergonomically, it's better to have your hand at a fucking, I don't know, straight and then like over a mouse. It's better to have it at a different angle or some shit. So he's got his own special fucking mouse. He's got a fucking foot clicker. It's crazy. But, um, yeah, I didn't anticipate gushing about Gowan so much, but he is uh, one of the most uh, talented people I've, I've probably ever met in my life. And I respect him, too. You know, he's, um, he knows what he wants, um, not just creatively, but in his life as well. And he's not chasing the brass ring, man. He's, uh, you know, he's comfortable. And uh, he likes, I, my sense is he likes working with people like myself. Um, you know, we're not superstars, but uh, yeah, maybe we're a good hang. Oh, and I think I was just trying to say, I was thinking about this in light of the podcast, which is for me, some of the most exciting moments in the studio or the, the most fun I have is when we're just talking and we like shoot the shit, like as he's working on something. I'll like show him some fucking video on YouTube that I think is funny. And, uh, we just sort of get into these conversations or whatever. Um, it's just something I've been thinking about as I, you know, get older, as I think about what the next chapter of my creative life is going to be like, what do I actually enjoy doing? And it's funny. I enjoy talking. I enjoy being funny. Um, it makes me think, you know, in another life, I wish I would have been like a stand-up comedian or something. It's like, dude, when I go through my life, that's what people tell me. You know, it's not like I go through my life and people say, oh, you're, you must be a musician. It's People always go, oh, you're an actor. Oh, you should be an actor. Or, oh, do you act? Or do you do stand-up? <clears throat> it always makes me think, man, like, whoa, maybe I missed my calling. Maybe I should have done something else. Although, of course, as soon as I say that, I think, you know, for someone who... <laughs> I mean, I was sort of laughing with Gallon was asking me about the podcast. He's like, oh, hey, how's the podcast going? I said, well, it's kind of funny because, you know, it's a big ask. It's a big ask to, you know, people start following you or connect with you because, I mean, fuck it, for most of you, it's like, oh, I like your acoustic covers, you know, of pop songs. And it's like, oh, yeah, you want to listen to me talk for an hour a week? And they're like, uh, no. <laughs> so, um, so it's kind of a big ask. But, uh, yeah, it's strange to say that this is, um, um, this is sort of what I enjoy doing the most right now. And it's, it's the thing that I do that gets the least attention. But, uh, but maybe that's life. I mean, it's, it's sort of funny. Like when you, I think like Bob Dylan is really into like painting and stuff. And, uh, I don't, I don't know if I'm making this up, but I feel like there was some documentary footage of him on his tour bus. And he was basically basically explained to the interviewer, this was like in the fucking mid 80s or something like that, maybe even the early 90s, where he was basically saying he sees he thinks of himself as a painter now who happens to play music. And it's one of those bizarre things where like every single diehard Bob Dylan fan would be like, no, you know, for them, Bob Dylan is, you know, a musician first and foremost, but life is long, you know, and I think if you're doing it right you live so many different chapters and you, and you become so many different people. And, um, yeah, it, uh, you know, it makes sense that Bob Dylan might look up in his later life and say, well, I, you know, I got to make my money doing music, but I, I really consider myself a painter. Dude, it's really, I just watched, um, Phantom Thread, which is phenomenal, by the way. Phantom Thread is, um, at least at this point, at the time of this recording is Paul Thomas Anderson's latest movie with Daniel Day-Lewis. Supposedly it's Daniel Day-Lewis's last movie. But um, 
every time I see Daniel Day Lewis, I just think, wow, he's so fucking incredible. And, um, I mean, just thinking about movies and film and stuff, like I love Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, you know, I mean, I remember Boogie Nights coming out. I remember, um, seeing it for the first time. I remember, I, I remember, I remember seeing Magnolia, you know, which was, uh, you know, a really important film for me growing up. It was just one of the, I don't want to say one of the first, but it's just one of those seminal movies from my, like, teenage years. That was just, like, a real film. You know, for me, it was just part of the canon of, like, important movies. And I think it shamed, shaped so much of what I thought of as, like, serious filmmaking. And it's so interesting to see Paul Thomas Anderson's style change over the years. I mean, if you look at Boogie Nights and a film like Phantom Thread, they just, they feel like they're from completely different fucking directors. Um, but I think the, you know, the three, the sort of trilogy of films that to me kind of feel cut from a, the, the same cloth, or, or at least the beginning of a different type of cloth than Paul Thomas Anderson had made his previous movies of, it's There Will Be Blood, The Master, and Phantom Thread. And they're these sort of character studies. And they're really carried by the performances of the actors. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis, obviously, in There Will Be Blood and, and, and Phantom Thread. Um, and it's not that the other leads aren't great. It's just that when Daniel Day-Lewis is on the screen, it's hard to really focus on anything else. And, um, and The Master was that also for Joaquin Phoenix. I mean, I haven't seen the new Joker movie yet, but I want to see it so bad because I, I think... Um, you know, I mean, I know it's a controversial movie right now. Um, and it's so hard to, I mean, until you've seen them, obviously, but in general, it's hard to evaluate these things, you know, at the time that you see them because they're sort of colored by the, I don't know, the, the penumbra or whatever you want to call it around them. But the master is one of Joaquin Phoenix's best roles. He's just completely committed. And the only sad part about that movie and it shares this actually with There Will Be Blood also, is <clears throat> I think Philip Seymour Hoffman is really not strong in that movie. And I'm totally speculating here because I don't know, but because he died, you know, within a couple years after that movie, maybe even within a year, I don't know, we'd have to look it up. But, you know, I, that makes me wonder if that was the beginning or if that movie was filmed at a time where he was sort of out of touch because to me when you watch Joaquin Phoenix and he's so present and so dedicated to his character and so in it Philip Seymour Hoffman really doesn't seem like he understands what's going on in the master he it it seems like he doesn't really understand what he's doing in this film and it feels like he doesn't really understand the character and there are good moments but they're sort of Philip Seymour Hoffman isms you know you see him do similar things in other films um, you know, and I think some of that is just talent. It's, it's habit, but it's not, I don't know. It's just, I, I just get this palpable sense that Philip Seymour Hoffman is a little, a little lost in that movie. <clears throat> Excuse me. Joaquin Phoenix, on the other hand, fucking kills it. Um, but I was going to say that this, what, what the similar sense I get in that is, and it's unfortunate is in there will be blood which is Paul Dano in that film. And, you know, if I was being a fucking dick or if I, you know, if I wasn't trying to be, like, more even-handed about it, I would say, like, oh, you know, Paul Dano ruins every fucking frame that he's in in that movie. But the truth is, if you ever want to see a prime example of somebody getting outacted or who's way out of their fucking league, it's Paul Dano in There Will Be Blood. 
And it's not that he wasn't serviceable. He was fine. But when he's across from Daniel Day-Lewis in every fucking scene, he looks ridiculous. And a lot I've said this to a lot of people, and they all say the same shit, which is, well, he's supposed to be that way. He's supposed to be this kind of whiny... I go, it, that's not what I'm talking about. He's literally getting outacted. You can literally feel his lack of confidence in that fucking movie. And it makes sense, actually, because I, I remember watching... I think it was like the director's commentary, like years ago. <clears throat> and... um. Paul Dano was never supposed to play that role. And I think what happened is they had another actor cast who was not working. And Paul Dano was literally just, you know, at the beginning he plays, um, spoiler alert, but he plays the brother of, um, Paul Dano's main character is this, this priest who, whose family owns the land that Daniel Plainview, Daniel Plainview, Daniel Day-Lewis's character is trying to, you know, get the land from. And so he could build his oil well or whatever the fuck. And, um, at the beginning of the film, one of the sons of this family, played by Paul Dano, leaves the farm and, and sort of, you know, goes to Daniel and for a certain amount of money sort of tells him where he can find oil, <clears throat> which happens to be his family. He sells out his family. And um, it was only after they fired the first actor that they said, you know what, we're just going to have Paul Dano, Paul Dano play both characters and we're just going to make it a plot point that they're twins or something like that. And, uh, yeah, it just is the case for me that I think you just see Paul Dano get outacted the entire freaking movie. And, uh, maybe that's just going to happen with Daniel Day-Lewis. You know, maybe he's just that strong. Um, but yeah, it's unfortunate. It's, well, one, it says something about Daniel Day-Lewis's acting, which even the bad performances around him can't mar the fucking movie. And also something about Paul Thomas Anderson's filmmaking, um, which is, having a a pretty pretty weak supporting lead character doesn't ruin the fucking movie. There Will Be Blood is a fucking incredible movie. It's one of the best movies of the last maybe 25 years or something. Um, and also No Country for Old Men that came out around that time um, was is also, I put it up there, which is sort of funny because they, they were shot, apparently they were shot in the exact same locations or in relatively close locations. And apparently... You know, there's a famous scene in There Will Be Blood where the oil... I want to say oil derrick. I think that's something out in the ocean, though. I think it's just like the oil rig or whatever the fuck you want to call it. It catches fire and it burns. And apparently, there No Country for Old Men, which was shooting in a similar area, had to shut down production for like two days because of the smoke in the air. It was like ruining their fucking shots. Um, and uh, I guess like the crews would like see each other in town or something like that. But um, <clears throat> just interesting to think that two of the best movies of the last 25 years were being shot almost simultaneously in the same location. Um, I would say that Philip Seymour Hoffman falling short in the master derails the film like quite a bit more. Um, that's yeah. I mean, the yeah. In fact, the only thing that keeps the master, I think from being like a, like a, like a genuinely great film is the casting is Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is a shame dude. Cause it should have been perfect. It was the perfect type of role for him. Not just because he sort of has the same the same sort of zoftic look as like the um, um, the um, L. Ron Hubbard character he's supposed to be playing, or the L. Ron Hubbard type character he's supposed to be playing. But Philip Seymour Hoffman's the shit, you know. And it was cool to see him in another Paul Thomas Anderson movie since Magnolia <clears throat> and Boogie Nights. Um, yeah, it's just unfortunate that it just uh, it wasn't great. It wasn't a great performance from him.
especially in one of his last movies. Um, but Phantom Thread is fucking phenomenal, and uh, Daniel Day-Lewis crushes it. And uh, I really wasn't sure. You know, I was expecting it to be just sort of, I don't know, it's sort of a period movie, and I expected it to just be one of those, like, kind of, I don't know, boring, ponderous, period films that's just, you know, I don't know, kind of not a lot going on, but it's it's super, it's a really interesting character study, and uh, and uh, it's really, really great. And apparently it's supposed to be Daniel Day-Lewis's last movie, so, so who knows. Um, I actually have to get some water here. My throat is like cash, so I'm gonna get some water. I'll be right back. Mm, nom, nom, nom. That's better. <clears throat> Man, I feel like fucking... First of all, dude, I, I was pouring my water and I was thinking like, I'm like Mark Zuckerberg. Mike Zuckerberg. Mike, Mark Zuckerberg from fucking Facebook. Remember when he was doing his fucking like testimony for the... I don't even fucking know. This is how dumb I am. I don't know what the fuck was going on. Was it like the Senate or some shit? He had to speak on like Facebook security or ad fucking bullshit or whatever and everyone thought he was a robot because the way he drank water. Just like... Mm, 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 mm. Mm, time to hydrate. Mm. Oh man, dude! Speaking of hydration, <clears throat> you know your boy is an athlete, and um, you know I'm training for this half marathon. Dude, I don't know when I fucking recorded last, so I don't know what I was boast, what distance I was boasting about on the last episode. But dude, last week I ran ten and a half miles. Woo! Crushed it too, by the way. Ten and a half fucking miles, dude. And I was feeling pretty good until, um, and you know your boy's going to school. You know he works his ass off. And, uh, oh, and by the way, I got 100% on my psych midterm. So, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'm a scholar. And, uh, I'm also a mathlete. And, uh, so this week I was like, I've just been working my ass off for school. And, uh, Thursday night I, I work at work work. And, uh, I finished there at like midnight, get home at 1230. I have to be up for a couple hours studying for this chem quiz. I get like four hours of sleep, take the chem quiz, sit through lecture, get home. And I'm supposed to run 11 miles before work. Excuse me. And, um, we had this sort of heat wave the last couple of days. So excuse me. Sorry. Um, I also had a fucking delicious ramen today. Um, yeah, it's funny. We had heat the last couple of days and today it's just like cold and windy. Me and my girlfriend were actually out at the, uh, the Berkeley Rose Garden. Um, you can sort of Google it if you want. It's just this fucking thing that we have here in Berkeley and it was so windy. And as we're sort of standing there in the, in the garden, we just hear this like sort of like cracking sound, right? Like wood cracking. And we sort of spin around, and on the top of the hill, this tree, this huge fucking tree just comes down. The wind is blowing, and it just fucking comes down. I think it was probably like, I don't even want to exaggerate, but I was going to say like a 100-foot tree just like fucking falls over. And thank God no one was hurt. Um, But it happened like right in a, you know, it should have like crushed cars. It just landed perfectly just to the side of the street. Um, So I don't know, man. We're having all sorts of fucking crazy weather out here. But uh, it was a little bit hotter, and I think it was a confluence of, you know, not getting a lot of sleep, you know, a little bit of heat, probably dehydrated. I was running, and I've never been so, I can't even really describe it accurately. It's It sounds like, it's like trying to describe a dream, you know, 
like even last night I had this crazy fucking dream where like this is this is what I'm talking about but basically like I was in this place that was like New Orleans but it wasn't and I was in this house and it's like I knew the woman who but it was like a bar restaurant type of place but then like the building itself was like a puzzle that we were trying to solve in time before these fucking goons like came and killed us of course it's fucking nonsense and and you can't even begin to picture what I'm telling you Um, but that's kind of how I felt running and it was very clear like after the first four miles that it was going to be a fucking challenge and I've had plenty of times where I'm tired and I've had plenty of times where I'm like whoo man my legs are gassed but I've never been like literally I felt psychologically defeated and I know when people run a marathon and it, it could probably happen to anybody who's sort of at the fringe of their physical ability. But it's like it makes, it probably makes the most sense when you think about a marathon, or a, yeah, a marathon, which is people hit what they call the wall. And they really don't think they can go any further. And I've never had that before, especially since I'd run 10 and a half miles the week before. I thought 11 miles is not going to be that big of a fucking deal. But even at seven miles, I was like, wow, this is, this feels really difficult for some reason. And I remember uh, I have these sort of stop points that I sort of turn around at and, you know, I have these benchmarks that I run to. And right when I hit one of my benchmarks at 9.8 miles, I stop for a couple seconds because I'll never walk the distance uh, that I'm meant to run. If I need to stop, I'll stop for like two seconds, but I, and then I'll start running again. Because my whole thing is, is like, if you want to run 11 miles, you got to run 11 miles. You can't like walk, you know, for an accumulated mile of it or something. You know, you got to run the whole thing. And, um, this dude in my neighborhood, he's so cool. He's this older black gentleman in my neighborhood. And, uh, I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's a burn victim. I don't know what, but he, he has this, you know, he has a look to him and, uh, he's always real encouraging me. And this is what he sounds like. Um, and I don't, I don't want to say my name, but he always, uh, I don't know. He, he calls out to me and he's like, Hey man, let me come, t- let me t- uh, come talk to me. So I like, I go over to his car and he's just telling me kind of what he always tells me, which is, you know, he sees me out here running. He's, a, you know, he's, you know, it's, he's, a, you know, he, he's just, he's very encouraging. And I do feel this when I'm running and he'll see me and he'll call out to me. And it makes me feel good. It makes me, you know, it makes me feel encouraged. It's motivating. That's what I'm, that's the word I'm looking for. It motivates me when he, uh, when he calls out to me. And, uh, and I, so he calls me over to his car and I like lean into the passenger window and I, I've never felt this way before, but I, I felt like I couldn't even focus on the words he was saying. And all I could see was that he had a water bottle like in the cup holder of his car. And I, and I'm not the type of person to do this, but I just said, uh, Hey man, uh, can I have some of that? And he was like, sure. And I remember as I'm drinking this water, I literally feel, I feel my strength coming back. I've never felt anything so palpable. It's like with every sip, and I'm going to drink some water now, but it's like with every sip, I could feel like myself being like rejuvenated a little bit, but psychologically, and this is the part that I can't describe, even as I was running that last mile, especially before I stopped, it was like I was so dehydrated, it was like I felt what, it felt like the connective tissue in my brain was sort of deteriorating, and I I felt like just the way my thoughts were sort of spinning and how defeated I felt. It was like, I felt my brain sort of like coming apart. And I know that sounds crazy, but it was like, I I literally felt as if like the connective tissue inside my brain was deteriorating in my brain, like almost as if it was just like, 
like in space or something. Like it just would have like started fucking drifting apart of itself. It's very weird. And I just as is, as Michael's talking to me, I have no idea what he's. T- I, I I literally can't track his conversation. I don't, I don't know what he's. I don't know what he's talking about. I'm just saying like uh huh uh huh uh huh yeah 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 uh huh. <laughs> I don't know if he thought like I was fucking. I don't know if he thought I was crazy or what. But um, I've literally never felt that way, especially since I've run further. Not just in my life, but recently too. So um, yeah, I guess I was just uh, exhausted. Um. But I literally, yeah, that was the end of the run. The minute I started, I was like, okay, I've had some water. I'm going to run. I took one step and I went, nope. No, I'm not. And I walked the the last 0.4 miles home. Man, I've never felt that way before in my life. Truly defeated. Phys- physically exhausted, but also it's like psychologically. Whew. Dude, it's like, have you seen those crazy videos of people like working out and they're like throwing up and they just don't stop. They just keep going like weightlifters, especially it's fucking insane. They're lifting in crazy amounts of weight and they're just like throwing up on themselves and they just keep lifting. Uh, it's like, Jesus Christ, stop. Give yourself a break. Here's the dude, uh, David Goggins. Is that his name? He's this black gentleman who uh, used to be like morbidly overbeast, but he was also like in the SEALs, Navy SEALs. He'll do like ultra marathons or whatever the fuck. Um, he tells this insane story about like, he was he was like massively overweight and like wanted to do this event. I think he had to like run a hundred miles and he was just not in shape for it. Hadn't trained or whatever. And he did the whole thing. And by the end of it, he had like shit all over himself and like couldn't walk and had to be carried to the car. His wife at the time had to like put him in a bathtub or something. Like, it was just crazy. And you just think like, Jesus Christ, I don't know how they do it. I mean, I understand the value of pushing yourself. I mean, I definitely think there's something to be said for, you know, whenever you think you're gassed, whenever you think you're, you're, you just can't do anymore, if you push yourself, you absolutely can. And I think running is a good example of that because when you start, and this is my experience, is the first like three miles is, <clears throat> it's a little difficult. You know, you feel, you feel your body sort of coming online. And in the first three miles, you can always feel like, man, I don't really, I'm supposed to run a long distance. I don't know how I'm going to get through it. But usually between mile three and, you know, I don't know, you sort of plateau for most of it. I mean, when I ran 10 and a half miles, it was pretty easy. You know, when it was over, I was happy it was over, but it was, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't very difficult at all. And I never felt like I was on the verge of, you know, being, you know, tapped out or whatever. You know, so it's difficult at first, but you push through and you actually plateau into this place where you actually feel like you can run forever. <clears throat> and uh, it's a shame that didn't happen to me uh, the other day. But uh, yeah, if you just dig a little deeper and push yourself, you know, and, and and the truth is I had been doing that. I mean, I know it wasn't a further distance than I run before, but you know, at that entire run, I mean, I felt pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty diminished. Um and I remember I just kept telling myself, like, all right, we'll just get to the next thing. And I was always like, all right, man, oh, I, I almost stopped so many times. And I remember just saying to myself, like, no, keep going, man. Keep running. You can do this. But after a while, yeah, just stop, stopping to talk to Michael and getting that water, man. That was the end. <clears throat> My body was like, nope, we're done. Man. Yep. I don't know. I don't know if you guys can hear this, but I, there's this dog yapping next door, and I, the wind is blowing so hard. I literally, um, where I record this, I had these shades drawn in front of me, 
and I see the light coming through and I see the shadow of all these tree branches outside my window just like and they're just like shaking violently. It's like some kind of horror movie or something. <clears throat> and I got this yippy dog next door just going yip 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 yip. I hate dogs like that. <clears throat> I hate little yappy yippy dogs. <clears throat> I like big dogs. I like a dog that you can sort of, you feel like you can sort of get on the ground and wrestle with it and you're not going to break it. And, you know, small dogs are fine. They're cuddly. You can put them on your lap, but I don't know. Even petting them, they just feel brittle. You know, I like a big dog that you can sort of, I don't know, you just rub, you can kind of rough them up a little bit. I don't want to sound like I beat dogs up, but, you know, you can sort of, you can, I don't know, you can horse around with them. You know? You can wrestle. Anyway, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about anymore. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I think the last time I was talking, was I talking about having a confidence crisis with the podcast? Yeah, it's been easy so far. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they're great. I sort of go back and listen to them, and I, I still think they're interesting. But um, but I don't know. I do wonder if it's interesting to anybody else. I go back to this idea of, oh, maybe I need bullet points. Maybe, maybe I need to know what I'm talking about. Maybe I need, maybe I need to have a theme. But, dude, I'm telling you, dude, I don't want guests. I don't want to fucking bring people on the show. They talk about what? I don't know. Their, their, their record? Their shit? I don't know. I'm not saying that conversations aren't interesting. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, if you get someone on here and you start talking, you can talk about all sorts of stuff, right? But, uh, well, maybe, maybe it goes back to collaborating. I mean, I don't know if I made this point specifically, but as I'm thinking about working with Gowan, you know, one of the coolest things about working with Gowan is the songs go in a direction that I never fucking anticipated. Crying is one of those that's coming out tomorrow. You'll have heard it. <clears throat> it's already available on Spotify by the time you hear this. But, um, you know, that song just sounds so different than what I wrote. And uh, it's so much better for it. It's so much better for it. So, who knows? But in a way, and this all, I don't know, it feels connected to running also, which is I, I, one thing I'm really enjoying about the podcast is one, not having anything prepared. You know, I really am surprised by where we go, <clears throat> but also it's like running, which is in a way, you know what? And I, I, sometimes people notice this when I'm performing and I don't know if, I don't know how, how many, it, it just, it's not articulated to, I, I, I'm aware of it, but it doesn't get articulated to me very often. But when I did this Matt Nathanson show, I had a couple people come up to me and said, man, you're just up there by yourself with your guitar. Man, that's scary. And I do, it's the only way I've ever performed, so I don't really think about it, but they're absolutely right. And, and, and I do think about it a little bit when, when things aren't going well. <laughs> uh, but there's nowhere to hide. You know, there's nobody to pick up the slack. I mean, if you fuck up, you're just on your own. There's literally nothing to do but just, I mean, you fucked up. You know what I mean? And, um, and, uh, I'm enjoying that about the podcast too. I mean, I feel like not having guests, not having whatever, like I, you know, whether or not I realize that I'm forging something, you know, and it's like running. Yeah. I had a shitty day on Friday running and I didn't run as far as I was supposed to. And I gassed out, but I, I dug, but the truth is I, I know I dug deep and I pushed myself and there were so many times where I could have stopped and dude, a lot of people would have. And I dug deep and I ran further than I, I physically felt I could and I still did it. I kinda, I'm kind of treating the podcast this way. I don't, dude, maybe I'll have 25 shitty episodes in a row. But dude, I'm serious. I'm doing 100 of these and I'm not stopping. 
<clears throat> actually, I think the last episode I was talking about, you know, this old friend of mine who had sort of, I think part of the confidence crisis was, you know, someone making it very clear that they, that they did not enjoy the podcast and that I should delete all of them. You know, it's so sad that one person's feedback can, um, I don't know, can steal you so much joy. It's weird, like, what power we give to certain people. I encounter it all the time at work. You know, you feel like from an obje- objective perspective, you can see why somebody shouldn't, you know, believe somebody's, this one person's opinion in their life so much, but I think we all do that. There's certain people, like, damn everybody else, but if this person doesn't like it, damn. We just give so much credence to their... <clears throat> Um, to their opinion. You know, it's like if you're a musician and, you know, if, you know, there was a time period if Pitchfork, if, if Pitchfork gave your album a bad review, you fucking sucked. Like, people just believed it. Like, I, I don't know what it was exactly. So, um, but I saw this comic recently. It was like this animated cartoon thing that someone had drawn and posted and, and someone had shared it on social media. But it was this female game designer who had, uh, made some game and there was some popular YouTube. Well, basically she had made this game and released it on some platform where independent game creators could release their games and have people play it. And apparently, according to this person's story, um, it was doing well. It was doing great and was getting a lot of positive feedback. And then this popular YouTube gamer like played it on his channel on a, like a live stream or something and gave it a negative review and was just sort of articulating in kind of a patronizing way like what needed to be fixed about the game and why it wasn't very good. And according to this person's story, from that point forward, the video game just got horrible reviews. And I think the connection she was drawing was, you know, a lot of people are just defer to other people's expertise. And if they hear someone that they admire or a tastemaker or somebody make a criticism about something, that becomes their opinion, whether it's founded or not. I mean, I hear this all the time. You know, in, in, in this is with classical music or wine or um, games and music. I mean, you know, people just sort of conscript their opinions and their perspectives from some soundbite that they heard. I mean, all the time in life, I just hear people repeating things from some podcast that I also listen to that they don't fucking know that I listen to. And they're espousing their, this, I know they're verbatim spouting someone else's opinion and they're just sort of spouting it as their own. And look, we all do that to some extent. I'm not, I'm not trying to be um, draconian about it. That's just sort of what life is these days. Um, we're so inundated with content, uh, you know, we just sort of parrot the shit back to each other uh, as if we're not like consuming the same stuff. But, um, but yeah, what am I saying? Yeah, I don't know. We just give certain weight to some people's opinions. And if that person doesn't like it, it just sort of like, I don't know, it steals all the joy out of things for us. And maybe that's why I took a, you know, I took a week off of recording. I mean, as far as you guys know, I, I record one a week, but like I said, I don't. I record two a week. I'm way ahead of you guys. But uh, yeah, it did, it did make me take a step back. And it just made me think, you know, the last few episodes were pretty ponderous. One was, I mean, they were kind of vulnerable. They were kind of... um. I don't know. More serious? I guess, uh, you know, when I think back to, like, my favorite moments of the podcast so far was, like, Pristine Sneaker Life. I still love that episode. And I'm still happy where that that episode ended. Um, I'm eager to find more moments like that. And, um, and, uh, and we'll see. But again, I don't know. You can't force this stuff. You just gotta let it happen. <clears throat> And I'm also, I don't know, I, for some reason I'm thinking about other things in my life. I, I, I 
I told you guys I was reading Notes from Underground by Dostoevsky, and I, I just sort of stopped in the middle of it, and I haven't picked it up for like two weeks. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, just focusing on school, man. Yeah, or just to, we're almost in the home stretch here for the semester. Got like two months left, so not even like a month and a half. Um, I'm on track to get all A's, but but we'll see. Yeah, when I think about how long I've been recording now, I think I don't know. We're probably at like the. Are we at an hour yet? No, what are we at? We're almost at like the 55-minute mark. We're almost at an hour. Um, this is the part where if I was getting better questions from you guys, I'd take audience questions, but um, respectfully. And I do mean this respectfully. I, it's, it's, you know, make no fucking mistake. It's a criticism on you, on you guys, but it's, I also mean it respectfully, which is I don't get very good questions. <clears throat> and um, so, yeah. So, I don't know. Um, I'm, maybe that's just a challenge. Try to come up with some good questions. Anyway. <sighs> well, well, folks, what are we going to talk about for the end here? My last therapy session was... <laughs> I don't know what it is. I, I, I told you guys I go down to, I've gone back down to once a week now and, um, you'd think, um, I don't know. You'd think I have more material, uh, to, to take in, uh, at going at literally half as much. But, uh, I remember the last therapy session I had, like the first like, 20 minutes was just complete silence. You know, it happens sometimes. It can be uncomfortable. Like I said, I mean, at least in my therapist's office, you literally you literally hear the clock sticking if it's if it's silent, and every click is like you know it's just money. <laughs> it's not cheap, man. Boy, I'll tell you that going to the therapist is not free. That's for fucking sure. I will say though, I'm just thinking about like, you know, I said like I'm not reading, and uh, but I've I've. Uh, I've been stealing time to like, just like, I, I guess I was in therapy. I was like, I'm so busy with school and work. And also like, you know, and I, I feel so bad cause I don't, I don't see my girlfriend as much as I used to. And, and you know, she's not complaining about it. Um, I think she understands I'm busy, but I just, now that my schedule is so full and my days are often just like kind of wall to wall. I, even if I'm at home, I'm ha- I have to do homework. And, um, it should feel like time off or time by myself. I, I should be like, cause I'm, I'm an introvert and I know a lot of people fucking say that. A lot of people say they're a fucking introvert these days. And look, don't get me wrong. A lot of people are introverted, but I, a lot of times people say that and they, they, they mean shy or they mean what they're, you know, actually what they're really trying to say is that they're like fucking like quiet geniuses, you know? Like I remember for, there's all these like buzzy things that everyone identifies as cause they think it makes them fucking special. One of them is an introvert. The other one was an empath. For a while, everybody was like sharing articles on Facebook, like, you know, 50 things you need to know if you're dating an empath. Go fuck yourself, dude. There's nothing special about you. You're able to put yourself in other people's shoes? Fine. It's not a fucking superpower. That's what you're supposed to do. Being empathic is not a personality. It's a fucking thing you're supposed to develop as a fucking proper human being. But, um, but, uh, the time that I'm able to have to myself where I really just like, for me, I, if I'm not by myself, 
I'm on. I, I've tried to talk about this with other people, but I say like, for me, I'm on. I'm plugged in. It's it's the it's showtime. I'm performing. You know, I'm on the clock, so to speak. It's not unless I'm completely by myself that I feel like I'm I'm actually recharging. Everything else is a, is a commitment, and it doesn't mean I don't enjoy those things. I love spending time with my girlfriend. I love going in the studio. Sometimes school is even enjoyable. Sometimes I enjoy doing homework. I like having a podcast on in the background or some TV show that I don't need to have my eyes on, but I can just sort of enjoy the sound of and doing homework. And I enjoy learning. I enjoy starting a chapter of math and going, what the fuck? And by the end of it going, oh no, I understand this. Um, I'm not saying I want to do it for the rest of my life, but I do get some satisfaction out of it. But the time that I have to myself where I really just feel beholden to nobody and just like free is so fucking rare these days. But, um, uh, and so at least this, you know, for the last few months, I haven't like watched a lot of movies. Like normally when me and my brother talk on the phone, we have like 10 or 15 things to fucking share with each other about like what we're watching or what we can recommend or what we're reading. And dude, I've just been fucking tapped. But um, I did have a flurry of movie watching. One of them was Phantom Thread. The other was Midsummer. I don't know if I fucking talked about that on the last podcast. Maybe I did. But um, Midsummer by Ari Aster, who's the the filmmaker. He also did uh, Hereditary. But funny enough, one thing that I went back to recently, which I hadn't watched, I mean, since I was fucking like in my early teens, was old Japanese anime movies like Ghost in the Shell. And dude, I think it was just recommended to me by Amazon. And I was like, Ghost in the Shell? And I had completely forgotten that they remade it with Scarlett Johansson. Well, I haven't fucking seen it. I heard, I mean, it didn't get good reviews. But also, it was kind of fucking doomed because everyone was like super pissed that they whitewashed the the lead role and gave it to Scarlett Johansson instead of... um instead of a Japanese person, which I completely understand from just like a dispassionate level. But also, people don't fucking understand. It's not like Scarlett Johansson was cast because they fucking hate Asian people in Hollywood and they just want to cast white people. It's because she's a superstar. And they need someone who's going to fucking make them money. You know, if you're producing a film and you're going to invest literally millions of dollars into a film, you want to make sure you're going to get your goddamn money back. And you're not going to take any fucking risks for so-called being politically correct. It's easy to say that. It's easy for a, you know someone who just is in the public say, oh, you, you need to cast a Japanese person. It's like, hey, man, I need somebody who's going to make me money. And you know how many few celebrities that there are who are like guaranteed box office success? Dude, you know Brad Pitt came out with a fucking movie on Netflix that nobody fucking watched. What's it called? I think it's actually called Prey. But it's like about fucking tanks or some shit. And nobody watched it. You haven't watched it. You, don't, you probably don't even know what the fuck I'm talking about. And an international superstar, one of the world's biggest celebrities, came out with a movie and nobody fucking saw it. It happens all the fucking time now. I don't care. Like, Will Smith, Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt. You could make fucking dog shit with these people. And you used to put out in theaters and it would make money. That's why they had so much power and control, man. They would just, you put them in a movie and they just fucking made money. That's how it worked. Like The Rock is one of those guys now. He just makes a movie and people see it. That's just the way it fucking works. So you fucking dump hundreds of millions, millions of dollars into a movie like Ghost in the Shell. Dude, they would have cast anybody they thought could fucking make money in that movie. <clears throat> so anyway, I'm not saying don't cast Asian people. You absolutely should. But, um, you know, those decisions are not made by uh, evil white people in a room who, who want to um, not hire minorities. It's because they need people who are going to fucking make money. 
<clears throat> you know, and you name me an Asian actor who's uh, known um, uh, international superstar who's going to make the money. I would love for there to be one. <clears throat> you know, if we can make one, let's do it. I mean, I think that's why a lot of people really wanted to support Black Panther, right? You know, I think, and I, I totally get it. People like, you know, they like seeing new leads, you know, other than the same white people cast in all these movies. People like seeing people of color or actors of color or, uh, you know, people playing roles. Actually, you know, I'm just like, I'm pandering now. I feel bad about what I just said, so I'm like trying to cover my tracks. I'm just going to let that, I'm going to let what I said stand. <clears throat> Scarlett Johansson was cast because she's a fucking box office draw. That's why. But I was watching old anime movies, Ghost in the Shell, which is actually not great. I remember liking it as a kid, but dude, first of all, dude, Japanese anime is so sexualized. There's so much gratuitous, gratuitous nudity in them. It's crazy. But uh, Ghost in the Shell, is there. not a lot happens in it. It's kind of boring. Um, and then I watched uh, Ninja Scroll. And I don't even know if that was like a super popular one. That to me was just like part of the anime canon that we had at our house. And that one really fucking holds up. Also some gratuitous nudity and like rape. But um... <clears throat> but it's actually really entertaining. It moves quick. There's action. It's it's a good movie. If you haven't seen Ninja Scroll, watch it. But the one that fucking takes the cake that's just insanely great across the entire spectrum is Akira. And I know it's super easy to say that because that's, I know it's widely, it's sort of like the Citizen Kane of fucking um, anime. But that movie is so fucking good. It's not only entertaining and dramatic, but the, the animation itself is just so fucking unbelievable. I mean, you can watch it now, and it's still insane that it came. I think it was done in, like, 88? Maybe even earlier. I don't want to say it was, like, 83. It probably was, like, 88, 1988 or something like that. <clears throat> but Akira is an incredible movie. It's a little complicated, but it's uh, but it's really fucking great. Um, yeah, and I don't, know, I don't know why I went back to all that, except, um, yeah, that's what I'm watching. And... Um, yeah, so if you're looking for a good recommendation and you haven't, uh, and you're looking for a good movie to watch, find Akira if you're able to. Uh, honestly, I, I found it on YouTube for free, which is fucking crazy. But I actually, I think it's on Hulu. Um, I think you can watch Ninja Scroll on Hulu also. Um, Ghost in the Shell I watched on Amazon. But anyway, dude, those people should fucking pay me. <clears throat> those people should pay me for advertising their movies. But anyway, uh, yeah, so we've hit our time here. Um, and frankly, I'm, I'm running out of things to say. So uh, we'll wrap it there. Thanks so much for listening. Um, if you want to connect with me, my socials, you can find me at thisismxoxo is my social handle everywhere. Uh, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, pretty much everywhere you find uh, podcasts. And uh, help me grow it. Share this, share this podcast with a friend. Share your favorite episode share this episode if you want to and uh let's see if we can't uh, get more ears on this thing um otherwise uh, yeah i mean it's already out by now but um but um i got new music on spotify i got a new song called crying and by the time you hear this hopefully uh, uh this song backbone will also be out so give those a spin playlist them send those to a friend um but uh, but yeah, thanks for your continued support, and look forward to doing this again soon. And bye. Oh wait, I have a catchphrase. Ciao for now. <laughs> <laughs>